Welcome to the Apprenticeship Diaries podcast. I'm Chuck. This is part two of Amy Enrico's interview with Fawn Baker. This one is called Vicky's Girl. Welcome to the Apprenticeship Diaries, where raw meets refined. Let's be real, we're still working on refined. <laughs> what it took, what it takes, and the stories that are made. Join us as we learn from professionals about how their stories begin. I found um, disingenuous about um, the company ex- it, itself. And I knew that came from the very upper up of like the organization, but like the way that the kind of dulling of, um, of responsibilities and, and organ, you know, system got, got levied throughout the tiers of what mm-hmm. you were there. It just didn't, it didn't still feel good to be at the bottom level. The store that I was in had a huge turnover rate. It was mm-hmm. very, very like, we're you not know, that's, that's something that's something that we always talked about. I feel like, I feel like I was fortunate in my experience with the company in Michigan. It totally changed when I got to Ohio. Yeah. But one of the things that we always said whenever there was a new hire, because it was no matter what store I was at, there were always really high turnover rates. And one of the things that we just started saying was you're either a Vicky's girl or you're not. And then once you were with the company for a while, you started to realize that like, it was the weirdos. The weirdos were the ones that lasted. The girls that came in like, already had their updo already like prim and proper. Like those were the girls that didn't make it like the, the girl that you would think would be the stereotypical Victoria's secret sales girl was actually the opposite. They were the ones that weren't comfortable with their own bodies. They were the ones that weren't comfortable to go into the fitting rooms to adjust bras for people. But when you have like a room full of art school, uh, art school kids and like, uh, biology nerds, you know, I went to, uh, I worked with a girl that was, uh, just a, a biology nerd. So she was just fascinated with human bodies and everything. So for her, it was fascinating to see how people aged and things right. like that. But what I'm getting at is that there's just a certain personality type that is comfortable around another nude person, or if you're uncomfortable, you can swallow it and you can make that person comfortable. And that's the thing. That's what made you like a Vicky's girl, as we yeah. called it. It was like you put your own insecurities aside to make yeah. the guest more comfortable. Yeah. And those were the girls that fell in love with the company. And those were the girls that fell in love with coming in every day and like helping another woman find more confidence in herself. You know what I mean? Like oh, those absolutely. were the ones that lasted. Oh, I, I would have, I would have lasted too had that been the thing that would have carried me. Unfortunately, like I said, um, we, we had, we had things that were illegal going on. Like, um, uh, like my managers would say things like, oh, just don't tell them it's a credit card. You know, just, just talk about all the perks of, oh no, of we the, didn't have that. Oh, it was, it was bad business. We were pretty honest like, with our sales. I was all about the idea and, and always have been, had it been, had it been keen on my natural assets. In fact, Victoria's Secret loved me. They loved me so much that when I quit, they wouldn't kind of allow me to quit. They were like, this is your next two weeks. And I was like, it's just, I quit and I've already done two weeks as notice. (laughs) I'm well, can you just help us out? And I was like, no, 
No, that's that's kind of in essence quitting. No, I've you quit. took too much. I quit took too much. Right. I'm done. <laughs> and then they called me back months after I had gotten my new job and being like, hey, we were just we were just wondering if you uh you wanted to come back and if you need it. And I was like, nope. So moved on. <laughs> so here, here's one of the things I want to talk about since yeah. you've worked at Victoria's Secret. Also, you'll know exactly yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. So I, I grew up in one of those families where like you went in to hug my mom and you're like, not a hugger. She's like, no, no. Yeah. I grew up in one of those families where like we were very affectionate with one another. However, that was a tight bubble and yes. it was almost like, like the, the six foot COVID recommendation. Like yeah. that's not a problem for my family at all. Yeah. Like. We're about our personal space. So to grow up in, in a household where, you know, we were conditioned that it's not appropriate for people to touch you and it's not appropriate for you to touch other people. That's your space. That's their space. Right. The idea of tattooing would be incredibly crazy, but without having Victoria's Secret to kind of like break down those boundaries for me, without having that experience that made me set my own you know, reservations aside because my job was to make her feel more comfortable, right. you know, and in those moments when you're in a fitting room with another woman and she's standing there half nude and, you know, sometimes they're totally normal women, but sometimes they've had half, uh, half mastectomies or yep. they've had reconstruction or they've had botched boob jobs. Right. And it's really hard to like find a bra that fits right. Right. So those moments are really sacred and special. It's not like another sales situation because it's one woman standing there helping another woman find a way to feel more comfortable in her own skin. So if there, if there weren't those lessons at Victoria's Secret, I don't know if I would be able to be comfortable enough to sit down and have my hands on another person and feel them breathing and feel feel everything that they're going through, like right. to, to be in another person's space and have them in my space just as well. Right. If it, if it wasn't for Victoria's secret, kind of breaking that down for me, I don't know if I would be comfortable being a tattooer. Like right. for me, that was a crucial, again, like just on the path to becoming a tattooer, I wouldn't have known that being a panty pusher would ever come in handy. And it, that's yeah. just the funny slang slang term we call I love each that other offer that but, because that's something great for our listeners to hear like mm -hmm. in terms of being an artist you know because quite you know quite honestly it might have been an illustrator of some kind mm -hmm. had it had it not been from that experience of inner interfacing with the public and learning learning retail and learning that touch and that that human mm -hmm. experience that's really yeah. great there's no other there's no other retail company quite like that because because it is such a person, you know, I mean, right. you're literally measuring another woman's breast. Yeah. You stand back, you look at their body shape and it's like, you know what you need? Yeah. Yeah. You need, you need a balcony girl. We need yeah. to, we need to get those girls up, Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. and then, it, and just looking at the next person who might be a totally different body type, totally different needs, or maybe a young girl who's getting her first bra. So to like walk somebody through that for the first time, have you, did you ever deal with the dad that brought his daughter in? Yes, I, I dealt with all those were of super it. special moments where yep. it's like, oh, girl, come on. We and got you. Come, honestly, come. I learned is in terms of Victoria's Secret. I mean, I learned far before um, Victoria's Secret, um, that touch thing, because I was a hairstylist first and I grew up in a mm -hmm. hair salon and in the beauty industry. So that that kind of um, lolling and soul, <clears throat> consoling of a person about 
their physical being had already kind of been tackled as well as the business thing, which kind of didn't let me be in alignment with the way that they were operating their store. And it was just an isolated incident. I, I, from your experience, it's a completely different company if you have better leaders. But um, yeah. uh, I learned a lot from our uh, male our male uh, representatives um, because they needed me in order to do measurements and stuff because they weren't typically, you know, it wasn't the best for them to do that, but they, you know, a lot of them, um, you know, because they do have to take a step back, like you said about your family, they allowed me to have a nice temperance when it came to Mm -hmm. those things, because I didn't have a lot of boundaries in my, my, Growing up, you know, my my whole family, like we'd all seen each other naked at some point because we lived in a really small house. So it was like Mm -hmm. impossible. Plus we're a beauty industry and it was, you know, there was a lot of touch involved in general just because Mm -hmm. that's, that's the nature of the game. And, um, so for me to, to experience it through, um, being a male retail agent that was a panty pusher, um, gave me that, that nice dual thinking, um, where they had to really, you know, step back and, and look at it from a place. And I, and I think that would be great for any male tattoo artist to hear, you know, like it might be really an excitement to like, or, you know, there is ba- like, Oh, I get to touch, you know, women potentially. And like, and they, but like, you know, to be somebody that has to, in that, that moment and, and nude photographers and things like mm-hmm. that, you know, like, there is a way to deal with women and their insecurities and their, you know, make them feel safe and comfortable and everything in both sexes. And mm-hmm. um, so I learned a lot from them. Um, but I, I do like that offering because you're right, like that, that, that touch, that communion, that um, presenting a safe space where, you know, people can be vulnerable is it's super important to being a tattoo it's, artist. I feel like it's incredibly important. And I think, I think that's one of the things that my clients crave is that like safe, like, yes, they're going to get brutalized, but like they're safe to talk about anything. They're safe to wear anything. Mm-hmm. They're safe to just, you know, it, it's a total safe space. Um, but I, I think that's part of what, you know, that's part of what keeps people coming back is having that little spot of security. You know, yeah. it's a spot where they can, they're harnessing control of their body, of their life, you know, whatever, whatever the thing that motivates somebody to get tattooed, there's a, a level of control that you're taking. And, and I know you're genuinely there to help them with that, mm-hmm. which is also what I think yep. you learn if you learn well sales is that it's not, it's not, a it's not the way that my Victoria was like, Oh, just don't tell them half the information. No, I, that was where it lost me. I was like, no, transparency is everything I'm building a trust bond. And that's how Mm -hmm. I keep selling is if this person knows that I am a person reliable to connect the dots between what they're seeking. And, and I'm an agent of that. I am assisting them in their journey to finding what they want. And I'm with no judgment. I'm just simply a facilitator that puts them in alignment with what they're asking for. And I need to make sure that I'm transparent with that because mm-hmm. otherwise they'll never come back to me again. And that was the total like breaks. And that's why I only worked there for six months. I was like, mm-hmm. you people are a sham. Mm-hmm. I, I cannot, I cannot do this. Like it, it, it's not, there was good people there. Like I said, there was, there was good um, representatives there that I, that I did learn from, but 
at, at the bottom, I just couldn't like my upper ups. I was like, this is awful. I feel <laughs> awful. I hate working for this place. <laughs> yeah. So it was just how they forced you into interacting with people. Cause there was so much of like their bottom line, I think, mm-hmm. because they got commission off of my sales in a lot of ways because, um, because of whatever it was, but it was specifically about the credit cards and things like that. So they were super pushy with that. And so (laughs) there was, there was a point where like, you know, as close as I got with everybody, I don't really believe in credit. I just feel like, so I don't have credit cards. Like I've done a lot in life without credit cards and I haven't had that debt on my shoulders and things like that. So that was, that was always the thing. Like I never had enough credit cards and it was like, look, I don't believe in it. Like if my sales don't compensate for that. Right. And like the DM was finally like, you do have a point. You you have a point. It's like, I've got, I've got people coming to my store instead of traveling to Chicago. Like they're coming to me to make these big purchases. Like I'm doing something right. Like that's return business. These are the same ladies they're using. Like they already have Victoria's secret cards. How can I sell them something they already have lady? Like somebody did a better job before me. (laughs) Thank them. Well, what I'm hearing in this too, is that even at a very young age, um, you had professional boundaries. You knew your authentic self and you knew that that had to be something that, that coupled with how you sold and how you put yourself as an agent to even a company. There was boundaries there that you were like, listen, absolutely. I don't believe in this or I'm not. Yeah. yeah, Like I'm not going. One of the things, and I tell people all the time, like anytime I'm talking sales or retail with anybody, one of the things that I think made me a good salesperson is it I looked at it as my chance to educate somebody. Yeah. So I'm just giving, I'm, I'm educating somebody about something they need or something they already want. So if I can, if I can talk to a person, walk, educate them, walk away, let them make their own decision. I haven't been pushy. I've just educated them. Mm-hmm. And even if they don't get it today, they might go do some homework and order it or whatever. But like just taking the time to educate somebody is how you, that's how you're a good salesperson. If you have to, if you have to, if you have to be dishonest in that education, is that even a product you want to sell? Right. And then it's and that's where education. the integrity is. Yeah, that's yeah. where the integrity is. Is if it's a, if it's a product that's worthwhile, all you've got to do is educate somebody why they need this product. This product. Yes. Anything under other than that, that doesn't feel like an honest sales to me, and that's right. not that's well, not something that I would stand behind. But and even on the like you know the secret or an energy kind of um, calling to yourself kind of thing as far as success, I do believe this is. Um, a part of it is that one is an abundance thinking and one is a, a lacking thinking, you know, one, one is the result of somebody who thinks that they have to employ Ooh, those things. This is something yeah. I've been thinking about yeah. a lot lately. Like <laughs> go just, just, just the, like, we all know this. We all know at least one of these people that's like, you invite them out to do something. It's like, Oh, okay, I'll come. But like, I'm broke. So like, and then you get to wherever you're going to eat. It's like, well, I'm broke. So yeah, <sighs> come on, man. just quit saying it out loud. Not yes. that like you can't say it, but just quit putting it out there. Like, yeah, flip it around. Be like, <sighs> well, and not only that- it's like, it's like some people just get stuck being in their own way, thinking about what they don't have. Right. Well, and also, you know what I, I mean? It's, it's an insecurity to based on, on this thing that they don't, 
they don't want to burden the world or whoever they're with, with their bullshit. And I think that if they think if they just keep saying that, that it, it will somehow alleviate the pressure of it. But in, in essence, if you hear that once as a person who's inviting that person out, you've already heard it. You're already like, yeah, dude, I'm going to fucking cover your meal. I, I want, I want you there. I invited you there. Yes, so there's no yes. bearing on you're valuable. <laughs> you are a value all on your own. And that's why I'm inviting you. I want you there. Like I, I will cover the bill. I, I am not broke and, and you're not going to be broke forever too. If you just come and play with me and maybe a light bulb will come on and yeah, the, the other mentality that, <laughs> that like, that I wish I could take every person that is kind of stuck in that loop and just switch their thinking around and like, it'll get better. Like yeah. think it'll get better. Or, you know what I mean? Like thinking those like it will come like the day will come that I can share. Like, yeah. you know, and it's just, it's just been on my mind a lot lately. Cause there, there've been a lot of times where, you know, people make decisions based on money and things like that, where like sometimes just make the decision and have faith that it'll come. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the having faith that it'll come. Like one of the things is we were um, at the paradise event together I kind of heard all the podcasters, everybody kind of commented on it in their own way, but like, we all know we're not making any money at this. However, the illusion is that there's a lot of money to be made at this, but there's not like, I mean, unless, unless we want to get a lot of sponsors and stuff, but now we're sacrificing our freedom of what we can and can't say what we can and can't push, you know? So there's just just this funny illusion as some people get into this, let's call it a hobby or a second career, mm-hmm. but there's, there's really not money to be made in it. Like if mm-hmm. we're lucky enough to get picked up and like syndicated and pushed on other platforms, okay, there's going to be money to make money will come right. along. But like in reality, we're all, we're all still kind of in the infantile states of our, our projects. You know right. what I mean? I feel like you're definitely a lot further along than I am, but we're all kind what? of like in different, where no. you don't, you don't think <laughs> no, I feel no. like you've got a lot more experience talking on air than I do, but. Oh, that, well, um, <laughs> that's, uh, that might, I mean, no, I think that I'm just, uh, I just like to talk. Um, I think that you're more, I like the way that you have framed your podcast better. I think that you have, like you said, you've thought more about the growth of it and are less kamikaze than I am. I'm just reacting. I feel very reactive. For, no, I, me, I had totally the opposite impression. Great job. Thank you. <laughs> I, I think that's the problem with when people see me a lot of times is they think that there's a, there's more of a plan than there is. It's, uh, and maybe, maybe like what we started this with is that maybe I do have, like I said, it's not conscious. I, I don't, I know how to take a hit and have the right reaction, mm-hmm. but it's not conscious. It's just something that like for better, for worse, I, I, I think in certain things I make it look good, but I, <laughs> I really, I'm just like, she falls I, with grace. Doesn't she? That's what I, I mean. <laughs> And I fall often. So maybe that's why I fall with grace. He who stumbles gracefully. (laughs) But no, I I think, I think you're right. I think we're all on kind of the same um, level. And the thing that to note, at least for this podcast and for yours and for any of them, 
we're passion seeking, you know, like we're, Mm -hmm. we're wanting to feel the richness of life and every single part of it. And I think that when you're a person who moves towards your passions, you understand you have a vision beyond what, what you have ultimately at this moment, like you said, Mm -hmm. it will get better. It will, you know, it will manifest into something else. Why would I do, you know, like people often ask like in tattooing, do you, um, how do you do that? How do you, how do you do something when you know that, that so many things could go wrong? And I was like, well, you don't look at all the things that could go right. Well, we could stumble onto something awesome. Well, and you all, and I was like, I don't know. My dad, he always says it after he's done cutting hair. He's like, look at that. I got lucky again. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, no, dude, like, first of all, I wouldn't do anything. I, I, and we talked about with the skydiving, I wouldn't do anything. If the first thing that I start thinking about is my failures, you know, like I, I, I do it based on this blind passion of all the things, like you said, that will go right. And that's the thing that helps me like take the hits. That's the thing that helps me push through the, the hard knocks to get to the gold. And one day I do think it will for all of us. Um, I think we're, we're, we're basically illustrating. And that's what the beautiful thing about podcasts is we're illustrating our, our stories with people and sharing that with them. And, um, as, as this podcast is uh, of apprenticeships in general, yours is about being a collector and being a community maker and things like that. But I, I, I think you don't give yourself enough credit there. I, I see you as way more advanced than me in the podcast. Realm. <laughs> way more. Well, thank you. I've got well, so much to learn. You don't have as many episodes, but you have, um, it's way more polished way more polished. I, I would well, thank you. I yes. definitely feel like I'm always just, maybe, it, maybe it's the, like always seeing what can be better. Like that's yeah. always the thing. Like this could always be better. This could always, so I always feel like that's the thing that I see. Yeah. But, well, that's, that's all artists, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, that's the thing that keeps us going with everything. Yeah. We're, we're, we're like, like you said, with the biology and scientists, we're like mad scientists. We're, we're we got tangled. Oh, it's <laughs> Gray is 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 producing. producing <laughs> chaos. Oh, that face! She's so rejected. <laughs> my my dog's down here, like pestering her. You can't really see Lolo because she's, she's short. Pissed. There she is. <laughs> she's like, all of this is madness. I don't. Oh, oh your dog is so cute. <laughs> awesome. That's my baby dog. That's Lolo. It's She's the reason the camera keeps cutting out. Every time her tail hits oh. the cable, it, it flashes black for just a moment. So I'm I must so have glad. something just to touch loose, but I'm it's her. So, if anything, so if I if you lose me for a moment, I'll be right back. It's my dog. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. I love that we know that. <laughs> so that everybody knows that too. Um, I, I might make this our first um, YouTube um, debut, by the way, because I think it's been so great. And you have such a great setup too. I think that this is even more advanced. I know this is your space and stuff, but you have the fawn in the background. You you have- I'm kind of sitting backwards in my living room. I'm like facing my couch. Yeah. But I think for podcasters, for people who are curious about podcasting and stuff, for them to know that that we're real people and that like our setups are, you know, like sometimes have to be makeshift sometimes. But I, I feel like even like your home representation is better of you than what we're showing you right now of my home. This is our guest bedroom. Like it just is a convenient smaller space to like, but 
we I, I, I'm building out a studio downstairs. Oh, yeah, we're gonna but, make a sound room. <laughs> but yeah, but but right now that is not cool. Um, so <laughs> so so that's what I mean. Well, thank like, you. I, I, I tried you, to find the most interesting backdrop that wasn't a window. Your so. your podcast is way more polished than mine, and I think that that um, that will allow for the. I mean, but I don't, I don't, I don't even know. I think that the the conversations, like, I think the whole way that you've gone about it, I mean, there's things to, to tick off, but I think the foundation of yours is so much more what's going to carry it. The only thing that will change will probably be tattooing 101 or tattoo yeah. collecting 101. And you know, that's yeah. it. And then psh, brand. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And I mean, there's just, there's one of the things, if, if, if I didn't have such a heavy tattoo workload, I would be able to put even more time into it and things would be able to evolve more quickly. So I always, it's, it's, it's inevitable with us. We always feel limited by the amount of time that we have. So, yeah. you know, I, we've, we've been pretty much dedicating Thursdays to the podcast and that's when we'll like, you know, go out, get equipment, research things, talk about new things that we need and things like that. But like, I really want to start, I've been experimenting with like setting up in my room while I'm working and I've been like going live, like while I'm tattooing, but I need to, I need to find the optimal setup so I can have like two angles, like one of like the whole room and then one close up and then actually have a way to interact. Like if I can have a third, but now I'm just surrounded by electronics and I try to be analog. Like I, 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 yeah, I still draw things with paper. Yeah. Like you, you know, paintbrushes. Yeah. Did you know you can make art that's not on an iPad? That's how I do my art. Yeah. I mean, I can do it on the iPad too, but like you know, I'm ninety. I about ninety percent of my projects are mostly freehand. You know, I might stencil pieces here and there, but like I'm really like analog. I'm an analog person by nature. So there's like trade-offs of having all the technology around me because I think that kind of like influences and changes and my eyes definitely are more exhausted at the end of the day. And I think that, um, I think that's the better way to teach, uh, people. If you were to, um, show them a process of tattooing and like the kind of ritual that you have to be bedded in to be a, a tattoo artist, I think it is, any, any tool that we use, if it is a digital tool is an expedition tool. It's just simply Mm -hmm. the save time. Um, but it, for me, it's only okay. It's only not cheating. If you know, you can do it by hand. Oh, so I had a guy that wanted to work with me and he hadn't had an apprenticeship and he was like self-taught and this and that. And he would just pull designs off of his iPad and like, mirror them into a mandala and run it. And all the time I was like, I really want you to be able to do this with a protractor. I really want you to be able to design sacred shapes with the geometric tools. Yes. And he like, his argument was, it was 
it was obsolete and it was pointless and it was, and I was like, I can do this with the computer or I can sit down and do it by hand. What if the power goes out? What if your iPad crashes? What if you're halfway through a tattoo, lost your stencil and you've got to redraw it by hand? Like, what do you do then? You can't go back to your iPad. Like these things will happen. What do you do? You can't, you can't leave yourself the option to fail. And we just went round and round. He just like, how can you, how can you love sacred geometry and not know how to make it? Yeah. How can you? Not only that, but like, it's not like I want, it's not like I want you to have this be a part of your process. I just simply, and this is a thing for all apprentices. I just simply as a mentor or as a person that, that I'm, I'm struggling to respect certain elements of what you do Mm -hmm. because of what I know I dedicate to my craft. Um, I, I just would love to see you do it and experiencing it for the very fact that like, it would be about caring about me more. And that's something Mm -hmm. I had to learn. I had, I had an older tattoo artist that we got into a tussle about apprenticeships, just like, Hey, he really wanted them to learn how to make needles and go really old school. And I was like, dude, that's like teaching DOS to like software engineers at this point, like what Mm -hmm. would be the point? And we argued. And, but now upon the time that I've spent in the industry and learning how crass and how negating I was to him and his experience and mostly to him because it was something personal. I do think it was about like, Hey, you know, like this would matter to me. This would make me consider you more. This would make Mm -hmm. me feel better about what you're doing um, and add a quality to it where you don't have to make this your process, but if you at least showed me that you were willing to try this, it would make me care more about you as a person because you're not just being dismissive for no reason, you know, like, or whatever you assume to be the truth. (laughs) When you take part in those um, fundamentals or in those grounding skills, or at the very least, take the time to experience another person's way you're you're going to be amazed about what you might find out and it also it also for me now shows the kind of artist that you are because if you're willing to take the time and have the passion to invest in that that's really what that mad scientist kind of thing mm-hmm. is about because the way that I was going about it was a bottom line kind of thing about producing a person that could make money right away Um, And and my thought was after they start making money, then they could decide, you know, what kind of things they wanted to geek out about in the industry. I still think that there's a place for my thoughts (coughs) within a business mindset. Sorry, guys, I should be smoking more weed. No, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Right? No, you're fine. But no, I, I... I have regrets, uh, not necessarily because it wouldn't have led me here and now, but I want everybody to know that I've had reflection about my character and why it was, it was so obnoxious, um, to a seasoned tattoo artist who was very much so trying to give me a lot Mm -hmm. of good, valuable information. He was kind of tactless and I, I didn't, I didn't receive him well. Um, and you know, One of one of the things that having the opportunity to work with Derb and Marty Holcomb in particular, one of the reasons that that's so special to me is because I didn't have that formal training in the beginning. I didn't have that passing of the torch. I had the like, well, I'm confident in my drawing and painting skills and color theory and biology and chemistry knowledge. So I I feel like 
I can do this. Right. So I just like jumped in the deep end and, you know, I was lucky, but I had a lot of knowledge to start off with. So fast forward, you know, 10 years into my career, I start working with Derb and now I've got this opportunity to learn all of those fundamentals from him. And he learned from legends. Mm -hmm. And then short, like the same week that I joined the team, we get the news that Marty's going to be joining us. So a few months later, Marty wow. joins. I don't know if you're familiar with Marty Holcomb, but he's mm -hmm. been tattooing since 1972 and wow. he's drawn more flash than any artist on the planet. We think like Derb is Damn. really going to look into it and see if he's like more flash than anybody else. I'm always so, familiar with the work. I probably wouldn't be able to pick him out of the lineup if I'm being real with his face. He looks like a wizard. He's got a long, he's got a white beard and long white hair. No, like Merlin. Run, you know what? We've run into each other several times. That's how much, how dumb I am. Like within all of it, we've run into each other several times. He's at lots of tattoo conventions, just like Derb. You know, mm -hmm. they're both con convention. Uh, yeah, he used to be, uh, he used to at least come to Hell City. I know when he was younger, he went to a lot of shows and stuff. Um, but it's, it's really, and my room is like Marty's like kitty corner across the hall from me. So when he gets to telling stories with his clients, I have the privilege to kind of like overhear and listen. And he knows I am, he knows I get excited about hearing his stories and the history and, you know, like he's a living legend. It's rare to have the privilege to, to learn from somebody like that. And then to learn, have the privilege to learn from somebody like Derb and Marty at this point in my career, where I, I can appreciate the knowledge that they have to share. Like right. anytime Derb is tuning one of his machines or Servena's machines, I'm always like, what do you, what do you got? What do you got? There? What do you, so why, uh, why, why you got to gap it like that there? So Tell what's me. the difference between that capacitor and that capacitor? And, nice. and so like, why is this hand cut spring cut differently than that hand cut spring? Mm -hmm. So like, I can get that knowledge and he, Derb is a fantastic teacher. So it's, oh, that's awesome. it's really nice that the things that like, I didn't, I didn't have those lessons early on. I have the opportunity later in my career at a point where I can appreciate them to, kind of absorb that knowledge probably yeah. even more than I would have. Cause like in my early twenties, I was arrogant and I knew everything too, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? I, mean, I knew, I, was... I knew, I knew what I needed to know and that's all I needed to know. Some exciting news, diary listeners. We actually got a wonderful promotional code from Reinventing the Tattoo recently, and we're happy to share this with you. It's 10% off on a subscription to Reinventing the Tattoo. And if you don't know about this wonderful, wonderful service, it's continuing education for working professionals, very geared around tattooers. But I would venture to say that if you are looking to improve your art skills and have regular momentum to your career, creativity and to your own professional education, I can't recommend it enough. One of the prime people that you will be critiqued by and helped with and draw with and all of that good stuff is Guy Acheson. And if you don't know about him, you probably should. He is a very, very pivotal person in our industry. I joined them for, for one exercise. I, I did a color study. 
I mean, Rico sat there and, and watched me the other night do mm -hmm. a, a color study exercise with Guy and company, and it was amazing. I was flexing all kinds of muscles. It's just all around if you want to improve your art skills. I can't see a better way than hanging out with a lot of professional artists and seeing the kind of work that they do and the kind of exercises they work on all the time. It's www.reinventingthetattoo.com backslash The Apprenticeship Diaries. So again, that's www.reinventingthetattoo.com backslash The Apprenticeship Diaries. And that's gonna save you 10% on your subscription. Go check it out, folks. Hello, Apprenticeship Diary listeners. There's a new trimmer company out there called Smooth My Balls. And when I tell you it's Nick Free, it's Nick Free. If you want one and would like to save 15%, go to smoothmyballs.com forward slash The Apprenticeship Diaries. Tell us about how you went from Victoria's Secret into tattooing. How did that happen? Okay, so when we moved back to Ohio after economy crashed and everything, um, I took a job as a graphic designer. I like decided it was time to do something with all of the art I had sitting around. And so as I was working as a graphic designer in uh, Marion in the town that we were living in at the time, uh, I became friends with the guy who owned the tattoo shop, which was like on the same block. It was like around the corner, but on the same block. Um, and we hit it off. I started hanging out and I, like every day after work, I'd just go to his shop and chill. And it got to the point where like, while one person was waiting while he was tattooing, I'd like draw the lettering for him or I'd draw the little, you know, whatever they wanted, or like I'd get the flash and I'd get it ready to stencil. And, you know, I was, I was basically prepping for him just cause I was sitting there hanging out. Roll their blunts. I didn't even smoke weed at the time. Oh, man. This was, yeah. I didn't even smoke <laughs> weed yet. Yeah. The, I mean, I couldn't, I, I could break the weed up. That's all I could do with it. Dang. So, so, um, after a little while, he and I started talking and it was like kind of inevitable, like, all right, I'm, I'm drawing all your lettering. I'm, Draw, I'm, I'm preparing tattoos while, while the next client waits. Like, like I, th I, I think I'd be pretty good at this. Like, you know, I, I think I'd be good. And he's like, all right, well, you know, here's how much it'll be to start. And, you know, let me know when you're ready. And, you know, it was just one of those big conversations. Like, let me know when you're ready to start your apprenticeship and we'll roll with it. So it's like several months and I'm hanging out and I like, I've got a little chunk of money set back. You know, I've always worked multiple jobs. So I always had more than enough. Um, and I like one day I'm like, all right, like I'm ready to get serious with this. When are we going to start this thing? And he like took a drag off of his cigarette and he was like, women don't really succeed in tattooing. You don't really want to waste your time. And I was like, what? wow. All right cool you know what you know what I'm a yeah. painter anyways like I was just I would just arrogantly was like you know what you're right I'm not a tattooer I'm a fine artist get bent mm. yeah. yeah so I was just like <laughs> I know more about color than you I know more about calligraphy than you I know more like yeah like as he's fine. like women don't succeed at this like in my head I'm like 
are you serious? Like right. all the uh, things I know and have been helping you with all along, like now do you, so anyways, I, if you were to speculate about that, do you think that that was kind of seeing, do you think that that was a test in itself? Or do you think that was just his? No, it wasn't a system. test. Okay. We <laughs> had, we had, we had conversations about it after the fact. Okay. <laughs> um, it actually, I, I think it was his his gesture to like make it water under the bridge. He asked me to work on him and I like tied and connected a large area of his leg with some outer space stuff and like revamped Aww. an old tattoo and made it nice. So I think that That's was his cool. like, I think that was his way of apologizing and also va- validating me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But this was also 10 years after the fact. So yeah, yeah. So after all that happened, I was like, whatever, I'm a, I'm a fine artist anyways. I don't whatever um so I was still working I I was working as a bartender and uh one of the retail jobs that I had at the same time and then that following December my brother hit me up and he my brother also well let's call him a semi-pro tattooer professional race car driver wow Oh, no. oh my god jerry was a race car driver <laughs> yeah. um, oh my god so Crazy. so he's like he's like hey i want you to tattoo me and i was like Meh. i was like i'll draw it up but like have, have speedy do it for you and he's a mutual friend of ours who's also a tattooer i was like i'll draw it have speedy do it and he's like no i really want you to do it like i'll set my equipment up for you i'll walk you through it like i want you to do it and i was like Ugh. I was so sketched out, but he talked me into it and he like shows me how to like set his machine up and like how to adjust the contact screw to make the needle work different, which don't adjust the contact screw. That's not what you do. Don't do that. (laughs) Right. So he walks me through it and we did a banner with his, at the time, wife's name. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it healed up nice. It healed up light. But like, as I'm like working into it, he's like, it's not quite like drawing. It's, it's kind of the same, but it's not quite like drawing. I need to grab another swisher real quick. Hold on. Oh, sure. Sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Swish of sweets. Swish of sweets. Sorry. What was that? I don't know. We were just saying swisher sweets. Swishers. Swishers. Um, <laughs> So it heals up a little bit light. Uh, well, well, so while, I, while I'm working on him, I get like, as I'm like stretching the skin and mind you, I'd been hanging out at the tattoo shop for like right. a year and a half before this. And then there was just like a few month gap. Um, so like I'm stretching the skin and I'm doing all the things that I had been watching this other artist do all along and, you know, all the things that I had picked up, what to do, what maybe not to do. And I'm like, I've got the the needle in the skin for like maybe 45 seconds and then I just find my groove it just clicks it's like it's painting I'm painting into the skin I'm not drawing it just Mm -hmm. it just clicked and felt natural even with like an improperly set up machine and like using the back of a chair as an armrest uh, like all of these like improvised situations it was literally like 45 seconds of fumbling and then I just found my groove and it just I could feel how the needle hit the skin and I could, you know what I mean? Like, right. I just, 
felt that groove, but I, I had been tattooed a little bit. I had like a large piece on my ribs. So like at the same time, I knew what I was doing to him. I knew the pain that I was inflicting and I knew I wanted to be like intentional and deliberate. So, you know, it, it just felt natural. It felt like something that I should have been doing all along. Like I had so much to learn, but it, it felt natural. Um, so within probably a week, maybe three or four days to a week, um, I had a few of his buddies call me and they were like, Hey, can you finish this? Can you cover this? Can you, and for me, that was the very best way to like become confident. Cause when when somebody would sit down in front of me and they just had this train wreck that maybe they got in prison or maybe that like another artist started and didn't finish, or they got it started at a party and the guy was too drunk. Or, you know, when somebody sits down and they've got like this total train wreck disaster, I could look, I could look them in the eye and be like, I promise you, it will be better than what you have. You know what I mean? Just knowing, just knowing what I know about, like, for instance, you saw me when I was playing around with charcoal at paradise. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not afraid to put black where black goes. Like it needs to be there. So like just having that confidence with working with black, when I can look at a tattoo, that's only partially finished or like just weak, like, I just need to make this more black here. And like, I could like, at the same time that I'm fixing or finishing this tattoo, I can dissect what the other artists did wrong. Like, yes, it's bad, but why is it bad? What didn't they do right? So I'm diving in. I'm going to call it the shallow end because I was really, I wasn't really doing anything like original at first in the first few weeks. It was really just like repair work and cover work. And, but having, having, projects like that to start with, like I'm learning how to work with the skin. These people are giving me full trust because they've seen my drawings and like, and I've looked them in their soul and promised it's going to be better than what they have. Right. So when right off the rip, I've got that trust and I've got the time to just sit and like dissect and take apart what I'm repairing. I can learn how to manage the skin, how to manage cover-ups, but I'm also learning from all of these other artists' mistakes. And I'm also learning, was it the artist or is this person, you know, was the person the problem? Was the client the problem? So at the same time, I'm also learning red flags. Mm-hmm. Like, hmm, this is why this person has a failed tattoo. They yeah. were doing coke all night the night before and they don't sit still. Yeah, They keep sneaking off to the bathroom for another bump. Like you learn those red flags. Like this mm-hmm. does not lead to a good tattoo, no matter how good of an artist you are. Yeah. So I really, although I was really in over my head, I was very careful. Um, very soon I started doing like, you know, connecting pieces, filler pieces, you know, smoke wisps, like those kind of yeah. things that people would ask for. And it didn't take long at all for people to just start getting my lettering and like my quick little drawings that I would just draw like freehand right there with like two colors of mechanical pencils and refine the drawing and make the stencil right in front of them. And there we go. Like it was, it was incredibly haphazard, but it started rolling really quickly. Like within three months, I quit one job. And by six months I quit the other job just because tattooing became like, I didn't think I was going to have to keep a schedule right off the bat. 
So I'm like three months in and then I start doing tattoo parties and things like that. And the way I did tattoo parties, they were more like family reunions. Like people would invite their cousins, their parents, like I'd tattoo whole families. It wasn't like the drug out biker tattoo parties like you would imagine. Right. Um, so, you know, I'd be doing anywhere from four or five on up to 10 or 12 tattoos a day. And that's different people. That's different tattoo ideas. And it's just pumping them out one after the next, after the next. And I got to the point where I was like having parties six and seven days a week. So it was like, I need to slow down because my body's dying. I was exhausted all the time. I was living off a five hour energy and Red Bull. Oh man. It was was fantastic, but it was awful at the same time on my (laughs) body. But but just in being willing to schedule these parties and being able to like every opportunity that somebody would call me being willing to work, I, my skills grew so quickly, but it was, it wasn't that my skills grew that fast. It's that I was working that much. You know what I mean? Like I was working more than anybody I knew, but like, I was so hungry and I knew that every tattoo that I, every tattoo I do, I'm going to learn from. So every tattoo I do is going to be better than the one before it. So if I'm doing 10 tattoos in a day, in that one day, I see my line work get better. In one day, I see my line work get more confident. In one day, I see new saturation tricks helping and working. And I see in one day, I can see the difference between how I can saturate with a flat mag versus a curved mag. In one day, you know, like it was like leaps and bounds, but very, very quickly. Um, and so you guys all heard about my retail resume. You heard yep. little blips of that. So I'm, I had been tattooing maybe, maybe six months, like ballpark, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. Um, and I hear of a shop where basically the artist just walked out. So there's a tattoo studio equipped for two to three artists, no artists right upstairs from a head shop. Mind you, I still don't smoke weed at this time. <laughs> right on. So, so this was not my studio, but I did end up becoming the manager of the studio. Um, okay. The guy who owned it, his name was Nolan. Um, I basically like just laid out my sales resume to him. I'm like, look, I just started tattooing, but I've done this, this, and this. And he was like, oh, well, okay. When yeah. can we start? Um, so that was kind of like a crash course in dealing with the Columbus health board because, you know, there were a lot of, there were a lot of things the previous artists were doing wrong. So when the health inspector came in and she realized it was somebody, somebody totally new. And I had like cleaned this shop and made it like glistening. I rearranged. So everything was like utilitarian. I changed the light situation. She was like, wow, I was prepared to shut this down and you have definitely done a 180 with the place. And so like immediately it kind of put me in like good graces where like, for instance, there, it was on the campus area of uh, Ohio state. So like when she'd be on foot and she'd be making her rounds, she'd like make her first round, tell everybody to get their paperwork and stuff ready. And then she'd come and hang out with me and my manager. And we'd just like chill for a half hour, have lunch. And then she'd be like, all right, See you guys in a few weeks. Uh-huh. So it made me feel really good that like we were the chilling spot for the the health inspector while she was giving oh, yeah. everybody else a little bit of time. Um, so that made me really confident when the time came to open my own studio. Um, right. 
you know, I had already done this in a big community. I knew I could do it in a little one. Um, but there were a lot of just really lucky breaks. Like if I wouldn't have heard about Nolan needing some, needing an artist, you know, and just like, Hey, I don't really know what I'm doing yet, but here's my retail resume. It's right. fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. That's awesome. Um, no. And, and that's the thing too, is that like, um, you know, I just talked with a, a, an aspiring apprentice the other day and, you know, he was like, first of all, I want to thank you for being one of those artists that are willing to take the time to talk to me and share. And, and I was like, well, yeah, yeah, dude, you know, like that, but it's about the asking too. It's, I said, don't, don't negate your part of this. You asked me, that's a huge mm-hmm. thing that not a lot of people think to do. So they don't get anything, <laughs> you know? Um, and I was like, I think this is, it's kind of be a, it's a silly conversation because I think that you're going to, um, you're fine. <laughs> like you're, you're yeah. already doing everything that you need to do. You're fine. It's really just one of those things like, so to so many questions that an early tattooer can ask, my answer is just put your nose to the grindstone and you'll figure it out. Like yep. that's going to be the answer to so like somebody can tell you the answer, but you still got to put your nose to the grindstone and figure it out. Like, did I, did I be, did I become a good enough tattooer to run a studio in six months time? No, I, I did that in the thousands of tattoos that I did in that six months time, you know, that's where like the time is different for everybody, but it's, it's just how much work you're putting into it. Um, so I want to rewind back now that we learned how I got to running a studio. Yeah. So back when we were talking about my college experience, I was talking about the chair of my fine arts department. His name, I'm going to slaughter it because it's a, not a name that I can pronounce, but it was Zislav Sikora. Mm-hmm. So okay. I slaughtered it. Zislav Sikora was his name. Um, but he was the, he was the uh, chair of the fine arts department, but he was also my lithography um, instructor. And because I was a biology nerd, I already understood like the etching process. I understood all the chemistry and I understood the process. So I was the first person in the class to have an, a successful print. Like it just, it was just like, oh, okay. A plus B plus C, then this, then this. Okay. Order of operations, boom, successful right. print. Like it wasn't challenging for me to understand those processes. So because I had a, a successful print first, we had more time to like, chill and like get to know each other. And he shared with me that when he was in college, he put himself through school by making these huge, beautiful, like full body Japanese flash prints. So they would like double as his, his college projects and like things that he was presenting as his fine art in school. And then he would turn around and sell them to tattoo nice. studios so this I, I don't know the years for sure but this had to have been in the 70s um wow. so that's probably the first time that I was exposed to somebody who I really like really respected um who was like he was a working artist obviously he was the chair of the department and at the school like he was definitely like he'd earned his stripes but to hear that the tattoo community is what fed him through college while he got his start. It was like, hmm, hmm, okay, interesting. All right, 
Um, and then also he was a wealth of information about ink. There is so much that I know about black ink and pigment from that man that I kind of thought was common knowledge in the tattoo community and it's not. So I thought about maybe making a video just on that. You should. He, was, he talked to us about the the history of Kurosumi, like the Kurosumi nice. tattoo yes, yes. ink company. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also talked about mm-hmm. how the how and why printmakers have used that ink for so long. So mm-hmm. After having this history lesson about the ink company, of course, when I start tattooing, that's going to be the ink that I use because I trust it. I know how it's made. I know the history of the company. It's the oldest. It's been around the longest. But printmakers started using the Kurosumi ink because it was the truest carbon black that they could get their hands on at the time. And we're talking several hundred years ago. One of the things that makes Kurosumi special is because it is actually pit aged like you know how they'll age porcelain Mm -hmm. so they pit aged this ink it's just carbon glycerin and alcohol so there's nothing special about it it's just a basic carbon recipe right but they pit age it i can't remember for how many years but some number of years so it breaks down to its most organic carbon components so it's the most light fast because it's already broken down so light's not going to change it because it's had all that time to age and break down so by the time it's being used as a printmaker's ink or as a tattoo ink we've already got the truest most black black and most um long lasting it sounds yeah yeah and i i i like it because it's just a nice warm rich black i use kurosumi um, outlining ink for all of my blacks. I always right. have. I mean, I definitely used other blacks, but like it works so well. I know the history of it. I trust it. Why change it? Like, yeah. I don't think, I don't think a new company is going to come onto the market and have another formula that I'm going to trust more than something that's been tried and tested for hundreds of years. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like when I no. paint, I still seal my canvases with rabbit skin glue. Like I'm old school. I'm analog. I would, well, and rabbit, I was, wait, I, wait a minute. Rabbit no. skin glue. Yes. What? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Have you heard, heard of gesso? Of Do you know what gesso yeah. is? Yes, so gesso. Yes. Yeah, so gesso, natural gesso is rabbit skin glue and gypsum. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it gives you um, a barrier that will actually like expand and contract with moisture. So your paint on the surface doesn't crack. Yes. So the back of the painting can stretch where the front can stay firm and glazed and clear. Nice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, sometimes but the, the old fashioned way is the way to go. It's just, yeah. Well, and, but the only conflict with that I find is um, uh, people who want to remain um, vegetarian um, because there are elements in those things. Cause glycerin, I think does have animal byproducts, doesn't it? Um, or does um, it not? No, you can get vegetable glycerin. It's usually vegetable. Yeah, it's usually vegetable glycerin. But yes, you can definitely render glycerin from fat too. A Um, lot of soaps are rendered that way. You've seen Fight Club, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, and I I wanted to ask, is that something I don't know about uh, Kurosumi Inc.? Is is it um, an animal-based glycerin or is it um, vegetable? Um, Because I don't know. And I know that that's been a big thing in our inks is that... um, for a long sure time. It, I'm pretty sure that it's got the, you know how there's the different symbols and stamps that mean different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have to look into yeah, it because I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think there's anything in the formula that would have animal byproducts in it. Okay. I mean, I'm not, I'm not opposed because I'm, I, I was, um, I was, uh, 
vegetarian and vegan for a time, but I had, um, I kind of had an allowance outside of myself of like what I could control or affect. Mm -hmm. And I, I also like, I, I made, I made allowances for certain things that I just felt were superior. Um, for instance, like in the hair world, um, uh, components of hair dye that is vegetable based does not have the lasting, um, the lasting ability of most animal based, um, uh, mixtures just because biologically speaking, it kind of blends a little bit better just because like mixes with like our biology, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, when you have, you know, animal to animal instead of animal to vegetable, it just it kind of, it kind of adheres a little bit more. It's less superficial. Um, but, um, I don't know. I, I don't, I couldn't claim to ever know enough about biology or like you said, the ink components, as much as I have been an artist formally trained and everything, I didn't dip enough into the science aspects, aspects of it, uh, to, to make those dot connections. Um, yeah, this is just a crazy dot connection that was like way yeah. before this was like, yeah. I was 17. I didn't start tattooing till I was my late twenties. My dot so. connection was about the skin because I had to learn that in, in the hair world and learning skin was a part of hair and nails. I knew that I knew the biology and the makeup of those things and why. And when, whenever people are like, what is this actually doing? You know, how does it actually stay in my skin? That clicked right mm-hmm. away. I was like, well, this is what's happening. And then I could tell them why sun, why sun is bad. Um, Cause in the hair world, of course, and then any kind of aging thing and why, mm-hmm. why does it increase your potential of having an allergic reaction? Why does, mm-hmm. so those kind of things, it's about blood flow. And I knew enough about the biology. My dad's a um, certified personal trainer and a massage therapist. So I know those components of the body way mm-hmm. better than most people. And, and like, you know, what would be a, um, uh, uh, an illustrator for, um, what was it? An anatomical illustrator, those medical were things, illustrator, a medical illustrator. Those were the kind of books that you, you actually get when you're becoming a, a massage therapist. So when my dad had to like do assignments for massage, he would often give me his books because he already knew them, but he had to color in certain things. Let me ask you this. Color it. <laughs> Without the artist, who would educate the educators? Yes, exactly. Yes. Oh, I know. Well, and, like, and, and without the experimenter too, the person that is going to go beyond the boundaries of reason, you know, how, how would you teach reason without the person that is going to, to dabble beyond what is logical or reasonable? Mm-hmm. You, you need the adventure. You need, you need the person who's going to do the dumb shit. So yeah, if, if not for if not for the first curious artist slash slash doctor practitioners, like if not for those first people that were like dabbling in both realms, that were like, how does the body work? Yes, let's yes. figure this. Let's let's open it up. Let's document it. Let's not mm-hmm. just let's actually carefully open it. Let's draw what we see. Have you ever taken the time to look at like? very old outdated medical drawings and like the way they've changed and gotten better throughout the years but just to see like how hard they were trying to document what they saw with the yes sometimes you you know da vinci did it he his Mm -hmm. drawings were beautiful but when you see like other other doctors and other artists who are doing the same things or painters who are working off of cadavers like if not for those curious 
you know, some, like you've got to be comfortable with the morbid to even be that kind of curious to be like, but how does the heart work? <laughs> like, what is well, the shape? Mm-hmm. And, and then to be the person to open it up and then take the time to study it and then draw it and try to get it right and show somebody else. It's a bit like I, I've said to on your podcast and, and to Mark when we were at Paradise, um, there's something sociopathic about it. It's something that goes pure, like analytical that mm-hmm. you're, you're not. And I, I do think that it is, um, the reason why, you know, certain, certain engineers and certain medical people struggle with that bedside manner is because mm-hmm. you have to have a dual switch. You have to know when one is applicable and the other needs to override. And, but yes, it is a very, it's, it's, it's kind of like there's a comfort in the morbidity because we're not fully taking in the gravity of it. Mm -hmm. You know, like if we were to take in the full gravity of the effectualness of our actions, then we would never be able to do it. You know, like, um, but that switch gets cut off so that we can explore further than what a person who would stop in that moment, you know, did you um, sit in on Mark's presentation? I didn't. I didn't get a chance. It was to. so good. I'm, I'm sure it was. <laughs> it was so good. I'm gonna replay um, it. I want to replay it. Um, if it's I, it's available, is it? I believe so. Okay. Um, so I've definitely I've definitely had the privilege of like just standing and hearing him and Derb nerd out about needle technologies and like new things that they're both working on. So like I've I've gotten to like witness that like technical excitement that he like brings to the table. But it was, he did such a good job breaking down the science of the tattoo needle. Like he broke down the different diameters of the needles and the purposes of each needle. And I'm talking like the, the specific yeah, yeah. needle, not needle. the needle grouping. Yeah. Um, but he had diagrams that he put together that demonstrated so well, like how, di- how and why different needles have their purposes. And I feel like it's the, it's the tool that every like young tattooer needs. Like yes. when I, when I travel with Derb and I'm like working in the true tubes booth and I'm like selling needles and talking about products and stuff with people. It's so crazy how many people come up and they'll ask for like the most obscure needle configurations and they're clearly younger. So like, I know the telltale signs if you haven't been tattooing very long or yeah. you know what I mean? Um, but it's funny when somebody's like, yeah, I need a such and such bug pin because it's the only thing I can do this. But it's like, hold on a second. Wait a minute. What kind of work are you doing? Yeah. And then like I pick their brain a little bit. And usually people are really excited to show off what they're doing. And then after I see what they're doing and I see what they're trying to do, I can then point them to the right needles just because I've worked with them all and I know what's going to work the best. But Mark did such a good job of like breaking it down. I don't want to give any of his secrets away, but like he, no, I, his I presentation at paradise was the first time he had like given that seminar. So I know he's going to film it again. And I think he's going to release it as its own thing. But if you Good. ever have the chance to hear anybody listening to this, if you are wanting to know about needles, Mark from needle jig, yes, he's going to be putting Phenomenal. out some amazing material. He's one of the most technical nerds around derb's really nerdy but one of the things that derb concentrates on is the i mean he's got a seminar called the longevity of the artist so he um invented the the foam grips those were derb's idea right um those were kind of a game changer for me just like my hand health instantly was better like i switched to 
um, the original true grips and like the, I don't know if you've ever had like where your, your finger cracks, like right here from where the, the tube, where the tube rests on you. And like, you have long days and it just splits and your calluses will get so big. And you, then your, your index finger and r- ring finger start going numb. I, I've you, had the numbness. I've never had the cracking. Um, if you I, switch to the big foam grips, it alleviates both problems. No, I, I, I bulk mine out. I, I actually have, um, I tried the foam grip the other day and, um, uh, it was, it was the one from needle jig. I don't, I think I need a different diameter because it was a little too big for me. I think that the way that I hold things, I have a very rare way of holding a pen. Um, mm-hmm. and a pencil for my, my <clears throat> mechanics of my hand that is not typical for most people. Um, I I've never suffered, suffered carpal tunnel. I've never had mm-hmm. anything like that. And I, 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 I accuse my dad and thank him at the same time, because he was always teaching me ergonomics while sleeping, um, yep. and proper way of, of positioning yourself to make sure that your wrists are in the, the most ideal setting. So I think that's why I avoided it. And I've, I've, I've had always... to train myself to not sleep yes, like this. And yes. this, so it's either like this or like this. Yeah. And those are the two worst wrist yeah. and shoulder and elbow health. So yeah. like now I, I mindfully try to keep my arms low. I mean, I still have a tendency to like curl my hands to, I, I'll like wrap around the blanket and curl it in. Yeah. But as I get older, I definitely am mindful about the, I don't want to have any shoulder surgery. I don't want yes. to have carpal tunnel surgery. You know, when, yeah. so when I sleep, if I can actually let everything be comfortable and let all the inflammation work itself out, like that's what our sleep is for. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think it was just, um, I, I, I've kind of got my rhythm. I, I, um, I do a disposable tube and then I, um, I, I, I mean, this is not going to help. Uh, Mark's bottom line, but he'll appreciate the candor because that's what kind of guy he is. Um, I tried them. I tried the ones that I was gifted from paradise, but I found them to be a little bulky for me. Um, I like, I like just putting the disposable disposable grip, uh, a thing of paper towel, and then wrapping it with a bit of sports wrap. And that is like Mm -hmm. money for me. (laughs) It's like the perfect grip. It's the perfect. Cause even, even like that sports wrap interacting with your glove, I find a much more grippy surface. I don't know how. It's funny how part, like particular we'll get. Cause I, I use the, I use the, the true tattoo um, barrel grip and it's like wider at one end, narrower at the other. It's like, I call oh. it an Easter egg shape. Gotcha. So you can use it either way or, or yeah. you know, for whatever your ergonomic preference is. But then I wrap it in such a way that like the bottom, from like the bottom rib down, it is nice and cushy. And then from there up, it is like more firm from the more tattoo firm. tape. Yeah. That's awesome. You call it athletic tape. We call it tattoo tape. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to part two of the interview with Fawn Baker. Follow Fawn on Instagram at Fawn underscore Baker. Check out the Red Tree Tattoo Parlor in Columbus, Ohio, or online at redtreetattoo.com. Follow Reinventing the Tattoo on YouTube for the Tattoo Collecting Podcast. Join us again next week for part three. Thanks for listening. You can find the Apprenticeship Diaries on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our IG is the underscore apprenticeship underscore diaries. If you would like to offer constructive criticism or an interview, drop us an email at 
theapprenticeshipdiaries at gmail.com. We, we look, look forward, forward to hearing, hearing from, from our, our listeners. listeners.